Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. Amy McAllister lights up the main stage as the courageous Minnie Powell in Sean O'Casey's Shadow of a Gunman, O'Casey's first play to be produced at the Abbey in 1923. And so it is Amy McAllister's first play on an Irish stage. But Amy is no stranger to performing, with a rich life of work behind her in the UK, as well as being the best worst poet as a UK anti-slam champion. So far, so eight mile. But we go further. We talk about finding meaning in the work, finding sleep through the words, being a warrior on your own terms, and the wisdom of the one-sentence diary. Enjoy this podcast. Amy McAllister, thank you very much for doing this podcast uh, interview with me. No, Robs. So you are fresh from this stage, literally from the matinee performance. I am, um, yes. Is there a come down uh, straight after as the metaphorical curtain comes down? Um, it depends on if there's been a come up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so right now I'm a bit wired because my speech and drama teacher from when I was a little kid in my community centre was in. So I was more nervous than I would be normally. Because, you know, you get used to it and you're not as nervous anymore. And I've just had a little yap with her. So I'm a bit like, woohoo, about that. So I haven't had a come down yet because I'm still sort of there. But um, maybe in an hour I'll wish I could have a sleep. We'll find out. <laughs> this is your debut on the Abbey stage and, and the Irish and, stage. Yeah. And the lyric. Um, so you're a London-based Dublin yeah, actor. Yeah. When did you move over to London? I moved over when I was young, like, because um, at the time, the funding for Trinity's um, courses and stuff kept, coming and going and I kind of wanted to go away anyway. Um, what was the training like in, in London? Um, it was incredible. Um, I, I was very young, like I was I was underage when I went, um, which is kind of unusual, like they don't normally like to do that. But I was, you know, super wise and shit and had lived. So they let me in. But um, but it was great. It was a brilliant training. Um, you know, I hardly ever, this has been a pleasure because I'm working in my own accent, but I never do. That's really rare. Um you know, so stuff like that. I I don't think as a random girl from Tala, like I would have known how to do BBC English and Yorkshire and whatever else I've done. Drama school gave me that as well as all the other obviously amazing stuff. And it gave me practice because your third year of drama school is just basically being the luckiest working actor ever where you're back to back doing plays and you're just rehearsal, show, rehearsal, show. That was amazing. You know, you don't probably get that again very much in your whole life as a kind of working actor. So, yeah, it was great. And so what did you learn in drama school? It was the discipline as well. I think I had that already, to be honest, which okay. sounds weird, but I was super... Um, I always knew what I wanted to do. I was. I might not have been disciplined in other areas of my life, but when it came to this, I was always super, like, nerdy and I knew what I wanted. I mean, like, when I was young... I did a, a couple of commercials and I was young enough to be stupid and spend that money, but I didn't. I didn't spend a penny because I knew I was going to go to London. I knew I was going to need that money. And I didn't I didn't buy one lollipop, you know, like... And also, I, I got myself braces so that I'd be able to do toothpaste commercials. I remember being really... When I was young, like, I was like, I don't want there to be anything to hold me back from toothpaste commercials. So I got, like, train tracks, you know, yeah. myself. Like, So stuff like that. Um... I was always pretty from, focused. Yeah. yeah. So, and do you remember what age that happened for you? Like, I, I don't remember there being an age when I didn't know. Right. So, but um, so no, not really. And I, weirdly, I'd actually never seen a proper play before I went to drama school. So I don't even know. Somebody was talking to me about this the other day. And I, well, how did you know you wanted to do it if you'd never seen it? 
but I'd done it because I've done plays at school and I'd done plays in my community centre. So it kind of is irrelevant. But you never saw a play never in seen an action? One. I'd seen Panto. Right. Um, they used to have Panto in the back of the cigarette factory. Um, oh, the, is it John Player yeah, Blue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also I seen, I seen Simbad or something. I think it was Simbad because it had like really awful, like Irish people slightly blacked up kind of stuff going on. So okay. I think it was either Aladdin or Simbad. Um, at one of the, like the Gaiety or something. So I'd seen Panto, but no, I'd never seen plays and I just had done them and I wanted to do them more. So <laughs> so you always approached it like a business then from, and that was self-taught. Yeah, I guess like, I mean, I don't know if I'd say business because I loved it as well. Like I, I just, I just, there was no question. And I, I really appreciate how lucky I am with that because at the point, at the moment now, like I've got a good few friends who are having their, you know, existential crisis of like I don't know what I want to be when I grow up and I am growing up so I have to decide now like what am I supposed to do and I would hate that it's the one thing I definitely had if there's other things I didn't always have I always knew what I wanted to do and I think that is more than half the battle you'll find the resources you'll find the opportunities if you know if you don't know I think it's really hard and I think that's real common and I, I feel for anyone who doesn't know Well sometimes I, I had friends who graduated from drama school who were very very good and they would say that it was it was as hard knowing what you wanted to do and not being able to do it. Knowing that, that you had true. the talent yeah. and, you know... That is true. But yeah. the opportunities, the doors didn't open. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no... But I, I did, though, because that is true. And, like, you know, whenever I'm out of work for, like, four days, I go mental and I start, like... My agent does have to talk me out of doing the weirdest jobs. I'm like, no, no, I do want to go and do an STD commercial in, um, in Spanish uh, for no money... Um, that's kind of part of an education tour. Like, I'm just like, I'll take anything. But she's like, Amy, no, come back off the cliff. But, but you know, what I've tried to do when I'm in those moments of, oh my God, what's going on? I can't do the thing I want to do, is think about what it is about it that I like that can be applied to other things. Just to kind of calm myself down that, because I've never been able to think of anything else I actually would want to do. But if you do that, you can. Not that I do want to, but if I can f- figure out what is the meaning I get from doing acting, then that meaning is in other jobs, actually. And so, you know, if your friends were searching, they would find other jobs that give them what acting gives them. They really would. It's a horrible thing to even contemplate because you don't want to have to even think that it won't work out. But just in case it wasn't going to, I've been doing that and that does help. Uh, that was going to be one of my last questions to you, actually what it is you get from acting apart from the buzz I would assume yeah I mean like the buzz obviously I think we are all adrenaline junkies um, but but I do a lot of poetry and I've been thinking about why I don't get the buzz as often I get the good buzz but I don't get the nerves rather as often as I used to and I was wondering why it was was I just used to it or but I think it's because I do so many poetry gigs which I find actually much scarier because it's your own work and the crowd can be, you know, this crowd definitely want to be here, even if maybe there's a couple of dragged teenagers, but mostly they want to be here. Uh, poetry night, you might get people who've come for the music and they're like, poetry, what's that? Or like, I don't know, the, their mates there and they were just in the bar or whatever. Even much more of a tough crowd to deal with on occasion. And I feel like it's kind of made me a warrior. Like doing so much of that has made this feel much more structured and safe than the poetry, which, you're, you know, you might be reading something you just finished that day. 
it's your soul, <laughs> even if it's silly and it's about poo, which often it is, it's still a part of you that, you know, is you're really sharing and you can't hide behind anything. This I can be like, oh, if you didn't like it, maybe you didn't like the play. Maybe you didn't like the directing. Maybe you didn't like the other actors. But if you're on your own with your work, there's kind of no hiding. So, so yeah, I wouldn't be... The, sorry, I'm very long-winded. I'm like, no, this is good. Terrible. But um, I really am very long-winded. <laughs> I feel sorry for anyone who tries to have a conversation with me. But, um, yeah, I suppose what I do get out of it is con- connecting with people, both on the stage and also in the audience. Um, trying to figure out why people do the things they do. So, you know, what your character's doing. Why did they choose to do that? And therefore understanding people better in general understanding yourself better because you know sometimes you play a character who at first glance seems very different from you but then by looking closely at them you realise that you if you were in that situation might behave the same so you learn more about yourself and I guess then little things like giving people a laugh who might need it that day I really like that sounds cheesy but it's true um I remember doing a show once that wasn't selling very well in London. We ended up closing early and it was all a bit grim. But, you know, sometimes actors can get a bit jaded and maybe a bit sulky if they come in and they're like, oh, there's only 20 people in the audience. This is rubbish. I'm not going to try. And I remember that was sort of happening in the company. And I was in the wings just before it started. And there was this woman sitting by herself, like, in the first or the second row. She was all by herself. And she was kind of young, like... And I could have been projecting, but she just looked so sad. And it was a comedy. I mean, in inverted commas, that's why it closed early. But, you know, I just was like, oh, if we can just make her laugh just for like two and a half hours and then she can go back and her life might still be shit. But just give her a break, then it's worth it. Like, And so that's something I really get out of it. And if I think about that, that thing can be found in other jobs. If that's what's important to me, then I don't need to be on a stage getting clapped at the end of every day job. You know, where you know, if that's what you get out of it, you're gonna struggle to find a job you get clapped at the end of every day. Like <laughs> Sure, yeah. You know. I, I wanna get back to the, the poetry thing. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, to talk about Minnie Powell, the character you're playing in Shadow of a Gunman, um what's your take on her? Like it fearless hero or or just foolish martyr? Do you like her? I like her, yeah. I think um it's very difficult to play a character if you don't like them and if you at first don't like them you have to find a way to. Um, I, I suppose somewhere in the middle of the two that you said really um, I don't think she's an idiot because I think she thinks she's in the middle of something really special. We know now what happened. We didn't really win did we? <laughs> and even saying we I feel weird because I'm not a, in a we anymore but the we that they were didn't win and didn't lose but certainly it wasn't this kind of revolution that changed Ireland forever and made something of us that we'd never been it, but but they don't know that and I it's like the water charges thing right I don't know what will happen what I do know is that the house I'm staying in there is a bill on the fridge now so they're billing people but I also know that the house I'm staying in they ain't going to pay now we don't know yet if this will result in them abolishing the water charges but how exciting that it might and I know like I don't know a whole lot about it all because I live in England and we pay them there but what I've heard is there's different they're taxing it more than once and so here it isn't fair 
you know, so people who are in the middle of that, who are really involved in that, they might end up looking like idiots, but they're not idiots now because they're fighting what they think is a fight worth fighting. And hopefully it will be if that's what's the right thing. So, no, I think she's passionate and trying her best and braver than the men. And you know what? Good for her. And yeah, she's not that educated and she's maybe a bit naive, but aren't we all? <laughs> she's a, Yeah, you're right about the men. I mean, they're all talk, talk, and she's actually, all, like all the women actually are of action. It, I'm always yeah. a bit um, aghast at the reaction, uh, say, Adolphus gets with his bullying I of his know, wife. They like laugh. They, yeah, and then they as laugh. you were exiting, as Minnie was exiting, you know, up the Republic, uh, people are laughing. And because we, as the audience, know how it's all going. I'm always, I'm a bit kind of, yeah, I'm a bit aghast at how they react to it all. Well, it's something we take as a, as a bit of a challenge. I mean, one, as Seamus Shield says, the Irish people treat a joke as a serious thing and a serious thing as a joke. And we do. I mean, Jesus, me and the girls were laughing in the dressing room about something awful last night. You find the laughs and, you know, you might feel uncomfortable watching some man raise a hand to his wife because you raise yours or because your husband, you know, it can make you laugh, like we laugh at funerals. Um, so there's that. And also sometimes, occasionally they don't and we take it as a challenge. Like every night, can we try, can we try and make them see that the world that we're creating is scary and there's a war outside. And, you know, like there's a guy in the cast, Jamie um, O'Neill, who I'm sure he won't mind me saying, he... He loves listening to the very end of the show when I won't say anything much about it, but there's there's a line about the tapping right at the end of the show. And sometimes they go, ha, 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 at that because it was a little bit funny earlier, the reference to the tapping. But sometimes they don't. And on those nights, Jamie certainly feels, and I, I do too, that we've done something better. We've pulled them back. Because we got a brilliant note from Wayne, the director, once when we got to Dublin. In the Lyric in Belfast, they seemed more... Because I guess, in a way, they are still in a war zone. So I was going to ask what the difference was between the two venues. Huge difference, huge difference. So really? for us in Dublin, I think it's a piece about Dublin's past. So in a way, it's really relevant because it's Dublin. And in a way, it's distant because it's in the past. For Belfast, it's distant because it's Dublin. But it's relevant because it's happening now. There are Tommy Owenses everywhere in Belfast right now, on both sides. So it's very different, actually. Um, they laughed just as much, but at different things. And it also showed how, you know, there's references in the play to how the Protestants know their scripture and the Catholics don't. It's certainly true because when, you know, Mrs. Grigson or Adolphus speak parts of the scripture, like, they would get laughs, like, people in the audience who were perhaps Protestant would be like, oh, ha, ha, oh, that bit of scripture, you know. And all the Catholics are like, well, I don't really know. Like, we are, we're religious, I swear, but I don't, I don't really, I didn't really read the Bible. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So things like that. And and yeah, they'll they'll just find, um, so there's a bit when the auxiliary comes in and Seamus Shields gives his correct name and then actually corrects himself and gives a false name. That got a much bigger reaction um, up north and Dan um, who plays it off as Grigson explained that it's because nearly everyone has at some point in Belfast been walking down a street at night been stopped and had to think on their feet and give a false name where that's just not something we in Dublin 
have to consider unless you've done something really wrong. Um, so, yeah, there there are differences, but in a way it's it matches up to yeah. the same amount of laughing and darkness. You, you mentioned Wayne's note. Was, was yeah, that, so yeah. Wayne's note is brilliant. We um, got to Dublin and he said, we did a couple of previews and the audience were so loud and really laughing. But as if we were doing panto, I mean, it was slightly alarming. It was kind of nice for a bit, but then it was kind of also slightly alarming. And Wayne said, the Dublin audience will want to make this Mrs. Brown's boys. Don't let them. And that is what we are endeavouring to do. So, yeah. And And I want people to laugh and have a great time, but not the whole time because it's more than funny. It's mm. more than that. So. And your relationship with, uh, Minnie's relationship with Donald Davron, um, did you have a preconceived notion of how you were going to play it and then did it change in the rehearsal room as to, say, what Wayne wanted? or Like, which won out there? What actually won out, because it was something none of us could have expected, was um, Mark and I just are very giggly together. I mean, very giggly. It's now got to the point where I've, I think I've got it under wraps, but rehearsals were an absolute, like, I spent most rehearsals either pissing myself laughing, crying, or apologising for the fact that I had been pissing myself laughing. So some days I'd come in real guilty, sheepish, buying chocolate. And then the next day I'd be laughing again. And I just couldn't keep it together. And I, I don't know, now when I'm looking at it, I'm like, what's so funny? Like... What's the big deal? But it's just something about when me and Mark do that scene, there's something very, there's a potential for some serious giggling. So that in itself, that fed the whole scene and that became, that energy steered it so much. And what I love about Wayne is he has amazing ideas and he comes in so prepared with millions of ideas. But he's also so open to yours and also to what is naturally happening. So that scene... I I didn't think for a second it was going to be how it is when I read it, but I was I was game and Wayne was game and Mark was game. And you how don't did you first that. play it? Um, say in the audition, do you remember how? I, what I you actually didn't audition. I know, right? Get oh. me. <laughs> no, but I auditioned for Twelfth Night and we had a really nice time. And I I knew that I was wrong for the part in Twelfth Night, but I also knew oh I love Wayne and I kind of know thought oh he likes me too and did you know him before no 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 I just meant that I loved yeah. we just had a lovely kind of working thing and, and he recalled me and stuff and I was thinking why is he recalling me it cost me money to come to Ireland and I know I'm not going to get it I'm not right for the part but I think he just was trying to get to know me a bit better or something I don't know but I was happy to come back and it was fun um, so I think maybe just because of that he just offered it so I was delighted with that it's a good year fantastic yeah with have since graduating from drama school, have you been in constant employment? I I have and I haven't. Like, I'm I've been very very lucky. Um, but then you always have brief moments where it feels like everyone's forgotten you exist, and and it's hard, and you have to keep the faith and do other things. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I've been really really lucky. And I'd say most of my friends would say, "No, Amy, you've always been really lucky." Shut up. Um, but no, I have. Like everyone else, I have had times when I've been like, "Oh God." Is it all over? And, you know, every job you do, unless you've got your next one lined up, you genuinely think this could be my last job. It's just a fear you live with. And I thought I'd grow out of that. But I look at the older actors and you, like I'd say in about two weeks time now, you're going to smell the fear. 
because we'll be two weeks from the end or however much and it's the same for all of us in this country and in England anyway you know there are countries where you can be contracted permanently as an actor you just don't have that here and I kind of love the thrill of it as well but also it's it's hard like you just sometimes you're like I don't know when I'll make my rent again I don't know when that's going to happen. I've no idea. Like it could be in a month, it could be in a year. Like, and how do you anchor yourself during those times? Like, how do you keep the faith? And is it just like that store of strength you have within yourself? I think. Um, what's the little Ronnie called? Little Ronnie. You know the two Ronnies, the little one. He I'm came to talk Corbett, at our school. It? I think it's Corbett. That's what comes to my head, but yeah. I might be wrong. He came to talk at our school and well, he talked about yeah Corbett because Barker, I think, was the chap with the glasses. Yeah, he's the one that that he was yeah. dead, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, the little one, he said that you have to have a silver pea inside. So like, it's it's tiny, but it's made of it's metal. So everything else might be squished in the bag, but the silver pea won't. And that's kind of your belief your confidence that it will work out, your belief in yourself and your belief in the industry to notice that you are still there and like, please give you a job. And um, th- I know that sounds a bit um, conceptual, but sometimes that's what you need is just a little th- uh, image like that. For me, as I kind of mentioned, but the poetry has really made my life so much richer. It's made it it's made it so that I have another creative thing I do. It's not just like, oh, I've got all these ideas and all these feelings and I have to wait till my next acting job to do anything with them. Now I have my own thing. So I guess I don't feel as frightened of those times. But it's still hard because oh. I, f- I love this. This is definitely my thing more than poetry. Well, when you talk of poetry, you talk of of being less fearful of performing yeah. uh, poetry. Do you get the same buzz out of the writing? Like, is there a satisfaction there that when you complete something? And I, I know it goes a stage further when you perform it and there's this, you know, fear of performing it in front of an audience that it's your work. But when it's you at your desk having written something, do you kind of... Is there a fulfilment there? Is there, is there a buzz there? Um, there's definitely does it need isn't to be consumed by other people? It's, it's definitely, for me something I realised after it accidentally becoming a job because you know I got the the book thing happened and stuff like that well, tell me about yeah just that like somebody approached me to have a book I didn't what I mean is I didn't say oh I want to get published like I'm going to go and send my book so it was a brilliant accident I was very happy but at the same time it moved it from a hobby category to a work category and I although I like doing it I like doing it um, on my own what's the word like on my own terms and there was a brief bit there where I had to meet deadlines and do what I had to do which I didn't like because what I was going to say was yes I get a buzz from performing but writing absolutely isn't a buzz it's I only write when I need to and um, when I'm finished then I can go sleep it's as simple as that I can sleep and then I write and then I can so when I'm in the middle of writing it's really I'm not really feeling anything I'm just sort of getting it out and then I'm done like it's just like a kind of um, I'm sort of like I'm not even like all it feels like it takes a very short time like I just write it out it's like it's stuck in my head like a song and then I just have to get it on the page but sometimes it will be longer because like in the winter I found that 
after I'd finished, I was freezing because I'd after, I'd gotten up and I wasn't, my, my covers were down, you know, and I'm freezing because I've actually been sitting up in the middle of the night in the cold for longer than I realised. It's only when I finished, I'll be like, actually, that was an hour or two. It feels like five minutes. So you write to work. There's, there's a need to write and then you're working something out or getting something yeah, out. Yeah, working something out. or I don't even know exactly. Like, it's not something I analyse or think about. And I certainly, you know, I, I can also sit down and write, as you said, at a desk, but it's not how I write. It's something I can do. You know, some people ask me to write a poem for a wedding. I'll sit down and write that. Um, if I'm going to do a parody of something, I'll sit down and write that. But mainly I... That, that's why I love that it's not in the job category. Mm. I'll write when I need to and when I don't need to, I might not write for ages. And the thing is, when I write when I need to, I write good stuff. When I write because I'm trying to, it's, 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 it's okay, it can be good, but it's never as good as when you just needed to do it. So it just comes out way better, you know? And have you always written then? Because if, if you've always been, in a way, a natural performer and not knowing, almost not doing this, not acting. Were you just always writing? Was it just always something you did? I certainly didn't write poetry. Like I, I didn't, I did not expect to ever say that I was writing poetry. Like, um, but if I, if I think back, I was like, I, I always would write an extra essay in English just for the hell of it because it came in my head, and I wasn't even a total annoying nerd. I just. It was just in the back of my book and sometimes I remember the teacher once found one and I was so embarrassed because she, like, you know, made me read out a bloody story that wasn't even... And then everyone thought I was a dick, you know, and I hadn't even given it to her. It was just in the back of my book. See, I, I did. And the other day, my friend that I'm staying with, she showed me um, a little book. I used to be in Cubs and stuff. She showed me a little book we'd had to do, like, as Cubs, as a group, to kind of log a little camping trip we'd been on. And I'd written like poems that were kind of good like I'd written like little poems that were kind of funny silly poems about our thing and everyone else had written like in a diary form I'd done it in poetry but I didn't even remember that like so I suppose I have but I certainly you know I meet poets on the scene who are like they've always been poets and they've always been working up to being poets I wasn't writing poetry throughout my teens and you know I wasn't just now and then I accidentally wrote a poem and that's kind of how it still is now. I accidentally write poems now and then. You're a published poet now with that book. Yeah. Um, uh, are you as single as that cream? Yeah. Fantastic title. Um, Thanks. How did it then go from published poet on the page to anti-slam current champion in the UK? Um, and, what, and what is anti-slam? And by the way, I've just, I've just been... Uh, Your crown has been taken, has I, it? Apparently. I, I, yeah, one of my friends just went, oh, they've had the next one for this year. So, yeah, I was asked to be a judge, but I was here, so I couldn't. So I'm now... Ah, UK anti-Islam champion. I'm not the UK okay. anti-Islam champion, unfortunately. Um, so, uh, how did that happen? Um, well, there's a massive kind of separation, apparently, between spoken word poets and page poets. But I didn't know that, luckily. So I did both from the beginning. Um, what that means is, one, there are different nights you would go to to read if you're a page poet. And the crowd will probably be lots of older people who have poems about trains and gardens and birds and really good ones, really good ones, but still. And their grammar will be really good and they'll spell stuff the right way. And then there'll be spoken word, which is often, it borders on a lot of other things. Some of it's a bit like stand-up comedy. Some of it's a bit like a political rally. Um, some of it's just its own thing. 
its own amazing thing. And I, I did both always from the beginning. So when I first did a slam, I, I won it, which was great. And then the first time I submitted poetry, it just three poems like to a little thing, it got taken. So I was like, I didn't know that they were different and I, it was all very lucky and easy. Um, unlike, you know, lots of things are hard in life. This was really easy. So I was happy about that. Um, so that that's kind of how that happened. And, and then you just you're just in the scene really so you if you win something you tend to get gigs then and more paid gigs then and it just builds up and you'll do another slam and you might or might not win that and and then the anti-slam is something that oh so a, a normal slam just to be very clear is a bit like if you've seen eight mile where people get up and like compete with their poetry except it's not at all as cool as eight mile because we're all nerds um but still um so that's a normal slam. It's where poetry is actually marked and you go through rounds and get knocked out and then there's a winner. Whereas, you know, you'll also do gigs where it's nothing to do with competition because really that's nicer, I think. It's poetry. How can you make it compete, you know? But anti-slam is where they get people who've won slams, so everyone kind of knows them in the scene, to come and do a parody of themselves and write the best worst poem ever. And also to do the best worst performance ever. So you kind of... It's a great night for anyone to go to who likes kind of comedy and stuff, but it's even better if you've been to a, a normal poetry night because we'll kind of do the, the things we hate that happen at poetry nights. Like, you know, for example, there's people who they sell their book for so long that they never seem to get to the bit where they read their poems or, you know, people who wear a beret just like you expect poets to be or who have a really bad poem but do it in a really politically riling voice so that they think they're really important, you know. So you layer in as much of that awful stuff, plus the writing needs to be terrible, bizarre metaphors and awful rhymes and strange, like, changes. And, you know, and you layer all that together and then you, you kind of give your best, worst performance and then the worst poet with the lowest score wins. So, yeah, it's a great night out. <laughs> That's a series of rounds. Is that yeah, something... a series of rounds. And, and the last round... There's a an interval and just before the interval, so you write your stuff in advance and you can come in costume and stuff because you're being a parody of yourself or of a, anyone really. But, you know, I was very, you kind of what you think people probably think you are. So I was really diddly Irish, innocent thing, which I'm really not. But that's how I'm often perceived, I think. Um, and then, yeah, in the interval, they give they get the audience to shout out three things and then you have to go and write an entirely new, like long poem for your last round which is still an anti-slam poem and includes those things they said. So that's the hardest bit and the funnest bit, really, because that's when the weird stuff comes out. It's, it's really like good. comedy improv. Yeah, it's yeah, like comedy improv, totally. slightly, not quite on the spot. Yeah. But yeah, you got 10 minutes. So the poets are kind of, there'll be three poets left. They're often in the toilet or some random corner going, oh, trying to work in their weird, like, power tool or whatever it is that's been shouted out. Um, and how does yeah. that inform your other writing then? Uh, or does it, or do you just keep them separate? You mean the anti-slam writing? Yeah, the anti-slam stuff. Would that in any way inform the page poetry or no? You just I mean, I don't think of those as, as separate. Like, I don't think of any of my poetry as page or not. What I do know is that some stuff works better in a slam than others. Like a gentle little poem about, I don't know, a bird, even if it's nice to take into the bed and read, is not going to make people shout or be loud enough for the judges to judge you high. So funny things work or very topical things work. Um or really inspiring, like, life's so amazing, you can do it kind of things. They work, you know. Um, but um, I guess the great thing about writing for an anti-slam is 
you have to be bad. You're aiming to be awful. And you end up being kind of good because you can't, you've taken away the pressure to be good. And as a result, you're really free, like really free. So often when you're writing, you have to keep pulling it back from being good because you're like, oh, you start going down a kind of a really fun route and you're like, oh, no, no. Okay, how can I mess with this? Because it's too good. So I'm going to make that not rhyme and I'm going to make that really bizarre and I'll take that out and I'll put in a random interlude where I sing, you know, whatever. So it's really freeing. It's really fun. Can you remember what the winning piece was? Or Yeah, I yeah. mean, um, I would never do it. It's so horrible and inappropriate and crude because even those things you want to make, you know, uh, it's just... It's uh, in the moment and it's it's, it's what just a horrible, horrible is. thing. I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't um, put it on you. Like, that's the whole point. It's terrible. It's horrible. It's got really bad rhymes. Um, it's like a really over-sexualized schoolgirl with horrible views. And, you know, like, it still has to, the line. There is a line. Like, there was a guy once. I was judging the London because I won the London one and then you go and you do the UK one. So I judged the last London one. I think, because I'd already done the UK one by then, I think. And um, one guy got up and did something really kind of really chauvinistic and he didn't quite get the line right and the audience just hated him because it should be that they're like, oh, you're such a dick, but ha ha ha, you're not really. But we weren't sure he wasn't really. So it's actually really a skill, it is, to to be so shit that it's good. Uh, you know, it's 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 a fun one. <laughs> we don't have anything like that here. In, in you don't, do but we? I'm... I'm talking because when I was at the Lyric, I got into some poetry stuff up there, which is another great thing about it. Wherever you go, it's a, a way of getting into the city that you're in. So I now have like loads of lovely poet friends in Belfast and it's cool. I never would have met them. And, you know, so they don't have an anti-slam and Dublin doesn't have one. But the people who run it are now people I know. They're like mates, I guess. And I think there's one in Berlin now and they've got some, there's one in Edinburgh probably this year, I think. And so I think maybe... They should have one. I'm not sure, though, because you need a very rich scene because it has to be that the poets are sort of known in their straight work so that you get when they're doing a parody of themselves. And um, Dublin might have that. Belfast is amazing and it's growing, but it is still quite small and it might need a little bit more time. I don't know, because it's a it's a scene that's very much evolving and happening right now. I don't know why I'm I'm pursuing this line of questioning and just... We say, I was just thinking the exact same word as you said it there, just evolving. Not that the poetry has to evolve to anything else um, other than what it is, but will your writing, do you think, lead you anywhere else? I don't know where, why I'm not satisfied with you just being a poet. I, I don't know. It's is funny because it, it kind of, it, it sort of was doing and I realised in that case I didn't want it to. It's a funny one. Like It, it kind of almost did as well. I, I did a really big gig. It was like, I don't know why, but I was asked to do this thing at Udderbelly Festival, which is um, a big festival run by E4 on the South Bank in London. It's kind of a comedy festival. It's every summer and it's quite a big deal and it's like ticketed and proper expensive and shit, you know. And I I did this one night thing there called Tung Fu, which is where poets get up. um, It's all planned, as in, you know what poems you're going to do. But you get up and there's some musicians behind you who you haven't spoken to and you give them like a few little guidelines so you can say anything you can say can it be in 4-4 and blah 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 or you can say um, can this be like a mashup of Daft Punk and Britney Spears but in the future you know you, you can kind of say anything and then they play along and improvise as you do your piece and you improvise going with what's happening with them and it's kind of cool and kind of weird 
and I, I did a couple of my sort of crowd pleasers there and, and then was approached by a, a really big TV company to write a sketch show but then the producer got fired so then I didn't end up doing it but you know that almost happened um, and I don't know like I, f- I certainly feel more confident like I could maybe someday write stuff that I can do um, but I've never before been interested in that I've never really thought about write, writing dialogue but you know I've met some people lately that I think I could write with and um, I don't know maybe maybe but certainly on my own terms do you keep um, a journal or a diary as you uh, as you go? Yeah, I keep shows? a one sentence diary every night. Um, not in a strict way; it can be three sentences, but it's there's a very small bit of space on every day. Um, I've been doing that for about three years now. I love it. Um, it helps me sleep as well. I'm such an insomniac sometimes, but um, it just like it can be really b- like bland. Like I went to the shop and I did this. Or it can be like feeling really blah, like so it can be kind of ex- existential, or it can be really um, descriptive of my boring, boring day. But I like it, and I like looking back at it because sometimes a very what turned out to be a very significant thing is described in such kind of minor, like it's just sort of an off the hand comment, you know, six months ago, and you then that person becomes very significant, or that moment, or that that audition you're like oh that's now this job oh how funny like I was just going to that little thing and now it's this and you marked it in some way yeah and and I have it forever it's cool yeah I recommend that to anyone who can't you know how many people have every January from the age of 11 to 16 and then no February's March's April's because it's boring keeping a diary is boring and you end up ranting and going off and it's always you only write in it when you're sad or when you fancy a boy you never write in it when it's actually good but if you keep a one sentence diary you you tend to kind of bother it takes five seconds so you kind of can oh, that's fantastic that's, that's really interesting um, well it seems that you kind of you come across as quite fearless do I? <laughs> well yeah you do it's just you know uh, writing, performing, um, is, it, is there anything that you do fear? Is there anything that... Yeah. It, feels, well, it feels as if if there's something that you're scared of, you do it. Yes, that's true. Um, but I don't do it because I'm not scared. I do it because I am. And I don't want to be ruled by that. So so it, I really wouldn't say I'm fearless at all. I'm probably quite fearful. But maybe not of... Maybe, you know, there are things I'm not fear, fearful of that other people are, but... There's plenty I am fearful of and stuff maybe that you wouldn't expect. Um, I try to do things that scare me so that I'm alive. And yeah, because almost always the thing that scares you is the thing you have to do the most. It's the most important thing for you to do. So that's what I'm learning anyway. I've learned so far. And if I hadn't have done the things that made me frightened, I wouldn't have the life I have and I like my life. And... I'm happy so far with what I've gotten for myself and um, hopefully I'll continue to go get stuff for myself because sometimes no one else will so you've got to you know That's a a really nice note to end on Um, I think uh, we should go get lunch so that you're uh, (laughs) you're full up for the next uh, performance Um, Amy McAllister thank you very much No problem thanks for having me